we're going to be picking up where we left off. That's what we do. So in this church, it's not what's he going to pick. It's the Lord has picked it. We just return to it. And so in 2 Kings, we left off with Elisha doing an incredible work of grace in feeding an enemy marauding group. And what we saw in that is that God's desire is to be gracious to those whom we would say judgment is due. Pending this will be punishment for them. And we've all been there. All it takes is to get slighted, to get ripped off, to be hurt, wounded, victimized. And there you are in that decision of having to say, Lord, I don't have grace within me. I do not feel the way that you do. And that's a very honest, at times, analysis when tough times hit us, we have difficulty to translate the love of God that we believe in most assuredly to our circumstance, to the individuals that are not really behaving well. This story that we're in and we're picking it up in 24, that's verse 24 of chapter 6, is it's a very peculiar, but it's historically, as the word presents itself, factual. It is stunning to the degree of the decadence or the deplorable behavior of two characters in particular who are mothers by appointment, by anointing. And the title is from this addressing really all of us, our need to be both precautious and also predictably spiritual, that what we've started to do, we do not deviate from, and even in a time of famine, we do not try to satisfy that by any other means than the provision that God has given to us. And so in this, as you have it, spiritual famine provokes wicked feasting we have able we are able to cite some examples in the scriptures in which god's people certainly developed appetites that were averse to his virtue they did not by any means compliment him as god as provider they were insults they did have an alternative for as they were provocations to do evil, they provoked God to grant judgment. One of the things that we can see in these days is that it sure seems tough, doesn't it? It sure seems that the footsteps of righteousness are going every place other than in the direction of pronouncing or the clarion call for a culture to cease and desist from its vulgarity and its deviation from immorality and the things that we know ultimately as it expresses itself does grieve God, ultimately will render a decisive consequence. 
there's limited time. I do believe that we're to say that because that means we're living each day with the hope that God's timetable has been satisfied. The church will be taken up. It's not that we want to get out of here because things are so tough. It's that we anticipate that God all along has planned for us to be with him for eternity. And it for certain should be something that is highly encouraging while we do what it is we are to do in influencing people who do not know how to behave towards God. So we're going to pick it up. Then we'll have some scriptures that anchor us in events that have happened and precepts that remind us of how to avoid decisions that are costly, that have consequences. And so here we go. A great act of grace to the marauders, to the Syrians who were enemies of Israel, who came in to pillage and plunder, to loot and to kill. They were blinded. They were brought carefully to the northern kingdom. It was the place where Elisha's ministry was to be focused on. The corruption of the northern kingdom was his ministry. Maybe that's fitting to say your focus is the corruption within our country, within our state, within our community. And that's not taking a high place of judgment. It's taking a low place of serving and of praying and of asking the Lord to change hearts. But this is Elisha's area. It's not what you would call a club zone. It is not a vacation spot for him. And yet everything that he does is in the operation of the Spirit, knowing in advance what's coming. And rather than deviate from it, he aims towards it or he stops until it comes to him and he's able to address it as God has given utterance. That was precisely what happened in this previous event. The blindness that came over that group of enemy marauders was that they might not find a means of one doing harm, but at the same time that God could assure them that in their handicap, they would be taken captive by him to present to the wicked king. That was Ahab's son, who's in the position of ruling over the northern kingdom. It was to show him that God's in control when everything's out of control. And it was to show the favor of God upon even an enemy nation that he would feed them at his banqueting table and he would release them. And the beauty of that says this, so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. They were so impressed, so blessed by what God did through Elisha. They severed themselves from the majority of the Syrian army, and they would no longer be employed for services of destruction. Isn't it cool what God can do when he changes the heart of an individual who to our inspection examination, they're marauders, they're thieves, they're murderers, their foul-mouthed vulgarity disqualifies them from anything that we would say we want to have. And yet, 
the grace of God was a picture of Elisha doing that. They deserve probably to be governmentally executed, and I'm not making a case against corporal nor capital punishment. God's made a provision for it. But this is a different context in which he says, I'm going to bless these guys, and it's going to change them. My kindness will persuade them, and they will repent, and they will no longer indulge in what they have been indulging in. And it happened in verse 24 that after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. He may have done this out of anger because he, lo he loses his marauders, probably his special reconnaissance guys. If you're military, those are the guys that get dropped in behind the scenes at risk peril to their life. They get dropped in, they parachute in, or they literally repel down lines. And there's no one there to help them because they're secretively dropped. And the helicopters or the jets fly away. Usually it's low-flying helicopters. Because of him losing those warriors, he's ticked. And now he's going to besiege this city, which is the northern city, which was housing, if you would, the kingdom, notably the second portion and largest of Israel. And that's where they go. The enemy doesn't like it when it loses its position of strength in an army that is governed by spiritual darkness. At times, because of the victory that God gives us through the grace that has been dispensed from us, it riles the enemy up. And he goes after families. He goes after individuals. He goes after churches. So don't be surprised if you've been attacked. It comes with having victory. It comes with being a force to contend with. Because you've been changed, because you are effectual, the enemy will be sent in dispatch to see if it can bring you down. Through a variety of crises, it can be both domestic, it can be industrial, it can be obviously highly spiritual. So we keep our perspective. The dispatch of a larger army now, not the reconnaissance guys, they're learning choir songs now. They're pursuing in prayer the things of God. It's taking a little bit of liberty, but they're not the same. That's the important illustration. And so now there's this great famine, and this is where we come to a spiritual illustration and actually that is intended to tie us into that title. Spiritual famine provokes wicked feasting. Great famine in Samaria. Great famine in the United States of America. Great famine in China. Great famine in Russia. You name it, globally, there's a great spiritual famine. And it does have ramifications on as well, the productivity of all nations that make 
provision through God to keep their people satisfied. God's always had the intention that in government, he would preside over it and be a blessing then through the government agencies to his people because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's always been God's intention to bless his people. And so when governments fail God because they become godless, wickedness prevails, righteousness retreats, and the rest we see as consequence. The consequence ultimately we cannot escape. All you have to do is turn on a headline briefly read through a paper, scroll through something that's supposed to give you the insights of today, and it moves you away from the insights of eternity. It is so easy for us to get distracted because inside we have this craving to know what's going on. And God says, I know what's going on. I want you to know my will. And the more that you desire to know what's going on, the more vulnerable you will become to not loving me as you once did and of actually being claimed by the enemy for defeat. Great famine. You need to understand this is a spiritual picture right now. It's intended to show us what happens when there's spiritual famine in our lives, spiritual famine that affects the communities we live in, the states, the nation, the globe, and it parallels everyone's sorrow. This great famine in Samaria, and indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. They're left to what you would say is eating the discards the dirty stuff, the stuff that no one would imagine being acceptable by anybody's taste. They're showing you that inflation is high. To warrant that type of expenditure for that type of satisfaction is crazy. You've seen that, that even for the things that we would say are the tangibles, the necessary things that we should touch and put in our mouth, Inflation is making them almost untouchable. It's okay as long as you're trusting that your banqueting table is God's provision to you. And it may require and has that the old-fashioned recipes of grandma and grandpa come back to visit your table. What? Beans again? No. It's beans and rice. Okay? What? Beans again? No, 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 no. Richard, it's rice and beans. You're getting this all wrong all the time. There's variety. The zucchini boats, the tuna casseroles. I grew up with all of those things that allowed a mom to feed her five hungry teenage boys. I don't pass by a zucchini and hiss at it because it was a sustaining vegetable in my day. Cleverly in my opinion, served by mom, and cabbage was thrown in there, and Brussels sprouts were thrown in there, and you didn't leave the table until every bit was eaten, 
because that's the way my household operated. And there were times in which we would see who timed out. And it was always us, because at 12 o'clock, you're still sitting in the same spot you were at at 6 o'clock. And what was at one time warm and inviting to eat, if you tried it, is now cold, and you're still going to eat it, and you're not going to get it heated. The consequence of refusing something good prepared literally by mom, who's under the auspices of God, and you chose to shun him. So this famine represents, in biblical context, a spiritual dilemma that's having the consequence of industry, the feeding of a nation. And as a result of that, it leads to a wickedness of what then a person would do just to survive. Because that's where the enemy wants all of us to be, at that point where we're just surviving not living in confidence with what God has purposed for us, but we're just doing anything it takes to survive, even if it means giving up our faith, giving up our spiritual disciplines, settling for whatever inflationary prices are driving you to put into yourself just to survive. That's what culture wants, that you have only a mentality to preserve yourself in a carnal way, rather than to hang strongly with God for a spiritual victory. So that's what this is saying right now. Here's 26. This is the drama. It's pretty sickening, but we need to read it. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, he's surveying the fact that he's completely surrounded. Nothing's coming in. Nothing's going out. But there's a cry from below. The cry is from a woman. She cried out to him saying, Help, Lord, my king. She's got one part of that right. She's got the other part not so right. He is not her Lord. He's just a king. And he's a bad king. We are crying out in these days to our kings to make things better. But they are not our lords. And they cannot help us by any means. They don't have answers because they, in their position of authority, are interested in only preserving themselves as powerful. It's only for a short season. We run short seasons in about four-year election cycles. We, as believers, ought to know God's heart for those whom are in position of authority, and we ought to vote in faith, not in personalities. And sometimes God permits a variety of personalities to be those whom we would say, I don't like them because of the personalities. But what you don't know is what God has done in their heart and what they're willing to do to honor God. We need to be on the search for that. Do you know that Elijah would have been canceled out by the voting public for what he did? John the Baptist was canceled out by his culture for what he did. Jesus was canceled out for who he was. And so you must be attentive. This guy had no answers. He was the one that wanted to kill those who were helplessly captive and blind when God says, we're going to feed them. I'm going to show you what grace does.
help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Doesn't matter where I look. It's not my problem. I can't help you. We know that he didn't have a an endearing relationship with God, for he was indeed always averse to Elisha. So even though he's sounding godly, spiritual, there's no fruit in anything that he's done, nor his father did, nor his mother did, Jezebel. It comes from a terrible lineage. And that doesn't fault a person. It's what they choose to do to step out of that lineage. He never did. God only had a few within the construct of two kingdoms in which a total of eight would be cited and they were normally on Judah's side, maybe two that would be mentioned on Israel's side. And so the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So this is an historical count of what we would call an abominable presentation of compromise. And what we would say is overt depravity. No mother would consider doing that unless what the scriptures are implying, such wickedness had been permitted to prevail and it was not put in check when it should have been. This is what's happening in our culture today. It is like the other woman that says, give me your son, give me your daughter. Give me your livelihood, give me your heart. Just in this time of famine, where you have need, I have something that you can live by, live off. Just join up with me for a little bit and it'll be all right because then I'll reciprocate in a special way for you after you give me what it is I want. I want your sons and daughters to eat because I'm hungry and I will reciprocate and give you what you need in exchange, my sons and daughters. God made a very clear line of delineation between what people groups would and would not do. And one of them was very clearly, you do not surrender your daughters and sons to nations that do not know me. And you do not submit your sons and daughters to a government that does not know me. You protect them. No matter what the famine can represent in terms of the belly, this is the implication of what happens when in the hunger, spiritual hunger of a nation, of a world, you will see increase. And that's this stuff in which you go, who would have imagined that any of this could possibly be acceptable? Who could presume that any of this could be even remotely acceptable? Even he couldn't. And so she says, we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And there's a point in that. Always when Satan interjects a plan that requires of you something that's endearing, something that has been entrusted to you, something that's special, and you do it, you will never get return for it. You will only have loss, always. 
It's why we see from time to time, and perhaps even now, a generation of young people who, not understanding the heart of God, the banqueting table that he has set before him, they accept the table scraps of the world or the intrigue of whatever it may be that has enticed their flesh. She didn't get what she thought the deal would represent, that she could be fed and survive abhorrently off of another woman's baby. It is deplorable, but it's saying that wickedness has no bounds. And wickedness also has an acceptability to a world that is dark and a world that is very much susceptible to demonic persuasion, to delusion, reprobate minds. We're seeing it. It's saying that we are in a conflict that couldn't be more obvious, that God is coming back. We need to have an understanding of that. And we need to, as well, remain faithful to the precepts of what the Bible teaches us with regard to spiritual leverage, that is the strength that comes in his promises, as well as to hold on in our faith in which he works through us. It happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Sackcloth was to be worn, actually not under, but it was actually to be an exchange of apparel. This is duplicity that's being represented here. When a person is truly repentant, the garb, whatever it was, the apparel of the world that that person wears, it comes off. And in nakedness, sackcloth is placed over them. It's scratchy, it's irritating, but it's a sign that that person has genuinely left behind whatever it was that they had been exalted in, noted for, corrupted by, it goes. And the garment of burlap is worn. And there's also ash that comes with that, meaning whatever my life was before, it's burned up on an altar of sacrifice before God. And so we see even in these days, people that say, I'll get rid of the outer garment to show them my underwear. But it's not the burlap. It is not truly the heart of repentance. It's just there for show. Just to appease the people that they don't have to get fully irritated with me. Because I got just enough of this to say, I hear you. Politicians are doing that these days. I'm not saying that all do, and you need to understand that. It's just that this shows a duplicity. It is not true spirituality when the garb that that man is wearing is more prominent than what represents true humility and change. That's why one of the most magnificent things that happens in the church is this change. And we see it, and it's so difficult to translate that to a world system that doesn't understand. When the Spirit of God comes into a man, everything changes. To a woman, to a child, everything changes. It's regeneration. It's not just repristination, 
putting a splash of paint here and a cologne fragrance there. It's a complete reworking of the body system in which they are no longer vulnerable in the regenerative state to the corruption that the world at one time was imposing and was having an effect. And the decisions that are being made are incredibly inspiring. You do see it. We've seen it. We saw it last week. Oh, but those were children. Those are exactly the ones that God says you keep your eye on them. Because they lead in the innocence of trusting God. Because they're not wearing garments that are a facade. They're already wearing the burlap. They're already in that state of both humility and innocence in which that's all they want is God. I never have to explain to anybody, okay, did you walk them through the 10 points of, uh, did you get them through the Romans road? Did you really see that they understand? You know what? That's not my job. My job is to acknowledge that God's touched the heart of somebody and that's all I want to know. If it's a program that they have to sit under by me to be validated to go in there, I'm out of position. Some people have said, well, you stood over there as opposed to participate in it over here. It's because I'm content in being able to step back. I had guys that just lovingly and beautifully took people to that place in which the Spirit was leading them. I could have done it. I can do pretty much everything in the church. But the thing that I enjoy most is seeing actually that it's being done by you guys because the joy and the spirit of God is in you. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. So where can we go right now with this in the context of just closing this off? Well, here's what's going to happen as it closes off. He utters a curse. This tells you his heart. His garments told you his duplicity. His verbiage tells you his heart, and that is, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Duplicity will always render authenticity of a wicked heart because they'll say what it is that they're going to do to those Christians, what they're going to do to you for your imposition of God being greater than their needs or the reason for their needs. And so Elisha, a strong man in faith, one who teaches the word to his school and one who demonstrates in his walk the power of God through the manifestation of miracles that are both practical and actually unexplainable. We've seen that. One of our sisters last week said, Richard! Probably didn't say it like that, but it sounded like it. What? The Lord did a miracle in the practical, just like you've said before. How so? Because the water was shut off. Yeah. It was shut off on normally what your pattern is, is to get the tank full on Sunday and heated on Sunday. You wouldn't have had water for the baptisms that took place. You would have been looking at an empty bucket, wondering what happened. But the Lord worked 
through proddings and two guys that were there with you to get things going. And so we had water because it was put in the tank before we could even anticipate beyond two people what the Lord was going to do. That's what I'm saying is that in these days, God wants to do stuff and he'll use you in advance of it. And you're going to marvel at what you participated in. A sister reminded me, because it's something that I do teach on, to let the practical miracles of God be unrecognizable when in fact he's worthy of an applause for it. Yeah, <laughs> he is worthy of an applause and that is received. So I'm going to cite some scripture for you and you as a Berean can research it, okay? This is nothing new, what is being talked about. And the first step in a time of misplaced famine occurred in Genesis chapter 3 when everything that God had supplied to the first couple of the generations now that the world has known fell into the persuasion that something better was worthy of being sampled. And as a consequence, the world would then enter into a time of judgment and battling the consequence of sin, which is death. Genesis chapter 3 very clearly outlines that through disobedience, a decision was made to welcome wickedness. So what we want to do is always be able to say, therefore, when an option comes to taste of that, I won't. Because that, for me, has been forbidden by God. It's not on my plate. I'm not going back for seconds or thirds. In Exodus 16.1, there was a provision that God would make. There was a special food provision. It was the falling down as flakes, perhaps even likened as snow, drifting from heaven to earth that could be collected, and it was known as manna. It had every essential ingredient necessary to wholesomely and healthily provide for the feeding of a nation. And yet we find later on, as that provision was made because the people were complaining and they were complaining about what it was they ate in Egypt and they got the recipe wrong. We had meat and we had baby back ribs with special sauce on it and onions that were grilled and put in our tacos. They had nothing like that. But that's what they were imagining. And so what it tells us is that by complaint, God made this provision for manna. But then the manna got to be like, yes, it's, it's manna. How many things can you do with manna? What did you make with manna last week? My oven broke. I don't know. Nothing. It tells us in Numbers 11, 31 through 35, that because of that complaint, God says, you want me? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to put it at about two and a half feet high, and you can play baseball with it. And when you eat it, because it's what it is that you think is going to satisfy you, it's going to come at your nose. Because you're going to engorge yourself. You will have what it is you want, and the outcome will be a plague that will break over you, and you're going to regret what it is you ate. 
And you can read that story. It's ideal as a picture right now of saying this situation with these two women was directly related to a spiritual famine that ultimately was orchestrated by the king of Israel for what he would not do, which was turn his nation around to God. One voice, Elisha. One voice before him, Elijah. The prophets are on the scene. We are on the scene. And we have a voice. We need to use it in about a year and a half. We need to use it in any local elections that we have. We need to say, God, what do you want? Not what does my party want? What do you want? And I'm pretty confident that when you ask God what he wants, he'll tell you whom he wants, and he'll tell you why he wants them. And closing in Daniel chapter 1, you can research that. So these are the things you're going to research. Genesis 3. You're going to research Exodus chapter 16, Numbers 11, 31 through 35. That's the quail that comes up, and they get pretty pukey sick of it. And Daniel chapter 1, in which he says, and they would not defile themselves with the king's food. And the reason that that's important is because defilement is continually being served to our nation, to our kids, to each of us at certain tables within proximity of the nose and of the eyes and of the ears, the things that can say, oh my goodness, if I can just get a taste of that. But all it took was for Adam and Eve to have one taste. Doesn't say they, it does not say they made a stew or casserole. It was one taste. That was it. And so in closing as well, here's what we took away from our college class in Nehemiah. These are great points to remember in all of this. Don't sign on the enemy's dotted line. Sign on God's red line. You'll understand that later if you go back into that. Nehemiah, with his leadership team, says, we're not going back that way. We're going to sign. In fact, we're so committed to God that we're actually going to sign on a line that says, we'll enter into a curse if we betray God. We are now so focused on God that to leave him, we are signing our name to the curse that God will impose upon us if we leave him. That's pretty dramatic. See, in Deuteronomy 28, I'd sign on the blessings of God, 1 through 15. They said, no, we're going right to the curse. If we betray God, this is what we get. Separation, that's something that is a church God's heart is for us. Unification, thanks for being here. Dennis had us cozy up. It was pretty much not necessarily out of character for Dennis. It was something that we hadn't anticipated, and God did it. We cozied up. That takes a lot of submission and humility. Did you know that, to cozy up to people? It does. I'm sure that many of you were kind of like hesitant, and Dennis just waited until we cozied up. That's what God's doing. I'm waiting till you cozy up. You're my family. Get it together. Dedication. We're going to have dedication. You need to be dedicated, one, to the things of God, to pray for the things of God, meaning people saying, I'm on record for this. And the other thing is, in these times, in these times of wickedness, you need to have determination. I'm not going to turn from God. This is where I belong. This is how I'm to behave. 
I'm not changing my heart on the matter. My heart will always be open to be changed further in what blesses God the most in the time that I have to live. 